Well, hey, money lover, do you wish you had a do this next guide with the exact steps for building wealth? Because you can. It's called the seven steps to wealth, and it contains a proven framework and actionable plan to build your confidence and grow your wealth. It starts with step one decide. Decide to take action today by grabbing your free guide at hendershotwealth.com forward slash seven steps. That's hendershot with two T's wealth.com forward slash seven steps. The only cost is what you could lose by not taking control of your financial future. Welcome to the Love Your Money podcast with me, Hillary Hendershot. I'm a wife, mother, certified financial planner, profit first certified professional, and a successful business owner. This show is all about teaching you the methods, models, and mindsets of the truly wealthy. On Love Your Money, we talk about everything to do with your money, including how to improve your relationship to money, how to understand investing, and even how to create more profits in your business. Together, we can turn failure into freedom, fear into love, and dollars into millions. You ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Love Your Money show with Hillary Hendershot. I have with me Autumn Witt Boyd, who is a fellow professional, a friend. She's also a lawyer who helps business owners protect their intellectual property. She provides legal guidance as outside general counsel. Don't we all need that? Copyright and trademark protection, contract negotiation, and problem solving, just general problem solving. She loves helping business owners grow their dreams with smart collaborations and deals. You can find her in Chattanooga, Tennessee, very popular place to be with her three kids, husband. She likes to monogram stuff and put glitter on anything that stays still. She loves champagne while she's in bed, apparently. We'll talk more about that. (laughs) She also hosts the Legal Roadmap Podcast, and she teaches business owners how to protect their rights and stay out of hot water. All right. That's a lot. Welcome to the show. It's a busy time. Hi, Hillary. Thank you for having me. So if I were to offer you champagne, would you be like, you know what? I actually have to get in bed first. (laughs) No, but I went, you know, as we were discussing before we hit record, I'm having my last cup of coffee of the day. So I'd say like, let me finish the coffee and then we'll switch to champagne. I do feel like the whole day is best guided by herbs and meds. It's like caffeine, 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 and then let's slow down and the booze. <laughs> yeah, just a, just a bit. Very good. How do you like Chattanooga? Obviously, you love it. I came here almost 20 years ago for a two-year job, and I'm still here. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's got its hooks in me. Yeah, a lot of people are raving about it. And so you are in a role, lawyer, which is um, a t- intimidating for most people. It's one of those lawyer, doctor, engineer, sort of top career aspiration type goals. But a lot of lawyers, I think, end up, they either go the big firm route or they hang up a shingle and then they're like on their own in a small room for the rest of their lives. (laughs) So your route is a little bit different. Tell me just kind of the salient points. What do you think about your growing up with money impacted your career success? And then we'll get into kind of that narrative if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So I grew up like solidly middle-class. My dad was a doctor. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. We never felt wealthy, but we always felt like we had enough. Like it was just a comfortable, it was a nice childhood. They got divorced when I was pretty young. And so I think that was when like the money stuff became a little shake, not shakier, but we just started talking about it more because there was a pretty big disparity between my dad, who still was the professional and my mom, who was now kind of living on, you know, what little support, not little, but child support. Yeah. And so there was kind of always this conversation of like, well, ask your dad to pay for that. (laughs) Or 
Do we like, you know, any of the extras are the nice to have. Go where the deep pockets are, girl. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And to his credit or discredit, you know, we didn't have a lot of time together. And so because my mom was definitely the the primary parent. And so he said yes a lot, which was, which was nice. But then it was always, you know, I'd be with my mom, like shopping for back to school clothes or whatever. And we're like, you know, at the clearance racks, like at the outlets, very much like very money conscious. And it felt like the opposite with him. But that didn't feel like reality, if that makes sense. Like, because it wasn't Mm. the day to day. It felt a little bit like kind of circus dad. Vacation dad. Yeah. Vacation dad. Yeah. Yeah. So you got used to being constrained in terms of options. A little bit. Yeah. So I think that did inform. Now I had dreams of being a musician. I I joke that every copyright lawyer is like a frustrated artist. Is that right? So I had dreams of like going to music school. I'm a singer. And my actually, my mom was the one who put her foot down and was like, absolutely not. Will you get an arts degree? Like you need to be able to support yourself, which is just funny in retrospect. Like she never really supported herself. Right. But that was something that was very important to her for her kids, which was smart. I mean, it was the right choice. Right. So I think that did definitely impact then when I kind of realized, like I always kind of had that in mind when I was choosing a major and I kind of hopped around of different career paths before I settled into being a lawyer and like being able to provide for myself and have the kind of lifestyle I wanted was definitely top of mind. Like, because I started out in journalism and that is a tough road to hoe as far as, um, income and it's a lot of moving in the beginning. And yeah, it's just, it's a tough profession. And part of being a card carrying journalist, I think is being underpaid. Right. And I was like, I'm not really excited about that. That does not seem appealing to me. Well, good on you for making that strategic choice. Most people wait till their mid forties. So. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's funny, a lot of my journalism school friends are now lawyers. It's like a very natural, the skill set is basically the same. Is it? I I feel like that about my friends who got degrees in economics. So if you you do that, you either go to law school or you go to consult management consulting. And here I am as a financial advisor. So law school. So did you take loans or did dad pay or did, was it hybrid? I was very lucky that dad paid for undergrad, but it was very clear from the beginning. Like I got undergrad and we had a budget. Like it was not an unlimited amount. Okay. (laughs) But he was like, you're on your own for grad school, which I frankly think was smart because I was thinking like, oh, I might go to get a graduate degree in English, which is like lighting thousand dollar bills on fire. There's just not a lot of value add. to. When you say thousand dollar bills, you don't mean someone billing you for a thousand dollars. You mean you're burning your money. (laughs) You're just, yeah, you're just burning money. Not that there's not value in, you know, a graduate degree in the arts, but I hear you. So I really shopped for law school and I applied a lot of places and came down to the final two. Actually, this is funny. My dad was really wanting me to go to the university of Texas which would have been out of state. But like the offer they made me, I ended up at Vanderbilt, which seems like fancier and it was, but the offer that like the money ended up being about the same because the financial aid packages were very different. So yeah, it was on me, but I made the smartest choice anybody can make at age 21, which is not that... I now talk to people looking to go to law school. I'm like, I have a lot of lessons for you. Okay. But it's it's the choice I made. So yeah, I took out... I had a lot of loans, even with you know the financial aid package. Okay. And so then what did you do out of school? So I wanted to be a big fancy litigator. So big law was definitely like the path that I thought I wanted to be on. And part of that, I think is, it's what all the like smart... It's sexy. It's sexy. It's what the people at the top of the class were doing. And I have a background in theater, you know, music, like I don't mind talking to people. So it seemed like a natural fit. So I went, I got a clerkship for a judge right out of law school, which is like kind of a stepping stone to being a litigator. And that's what brought me to Chattanooga. 
Okay. So no regrets. It was great. And that's a pretty, it doesn't pay great, but you know, like, okay, it's just a, it's a, you know, you're working for the federal government. It's a two year gig. So that was fine. And then took a job at a medium sized law firm here, which was better pay, but still like not incredible. I mean, it's not like New York City, but this is a low cost of living city. So it was like very comfortable. And uh, when did you decide to go out on your own? So I left the law firm. I went to work for a smaller law firm, a boutique law firm doing just copyright litigation, which is like my dream job. And they gave me a big raise, which was nice. And I got to work from home, which was also nice. So I did that for almost seven years, but it was a travel. So it kind of worked until it didn't when I started having my kids. Yeah. The travel became unsustainable and they had initially offered that I could potentially be a partner, but that was not materializing. And frankly, I didn't really want to be partners with them after I knew them better as individuals. Yeah. So it got to the point where I was like, okay, I can't do that. Actually, my husband said, you can't, (laughs) we need to make a change. And he was right. Like I was so in it that I was like, no, it'll be fine. Like it'll get better. It'll get better. You know, when you're just like in the pain cave. Yeah, you can. That's, we can put up with a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You studied for the bar. You're like, I got this, bro. Uh, I mean, and they put the fear of God into you about like missing a deadline. So it's like you will just work yourself ragged because you know you cannot make a mistake. You cannot miss a deadline. So I was very good at all that. Yeah. I mean, you learn it. A good yeah. friend of mine is a, a trial attorney, and she told me once that she was very glad when she finally got in, engaged to be married because she could stop dating. So she told her managing partner that she would be able to build more hours now. Yeah. 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 Very healthy. Dating is so inefficient. Right. Right. I don't want to step over something that left me a little bit confused. I'm sure my listeners are confused. You said being a copyright attorney is your dream job. Yeah. Tell me I can't, I I just imagine you in a room with boxes and like fighting the, (laughs) the patent desk or whatever. Tell me what's dreamy about it. So I really went to law school wanting to be an intellectual property lawyer because I think of my background in music and just interest in the arts. So at that job, we I was working with photographers mostly and stock photography agencies. So it's creative people, but running small businesses. Okay. And the issues are really, this sounds super nerdy, but like it's a complicated area of law. It's not easy. It's interesting. Like there's always new stuff happening. And the work that we were doing, it really felt like we were kind of, you know, we were suing textbook publishers mostly who were using their images without permission. So it felt like, you know, David versus Goliath. Like we were helping this little guys who were, Uh, you know, all just really brilliant at their craft. So yeah, it was a total dream job, except I ended up spending my day arguing against like the big law attorneys that the textbook publishers hired. And so that was awful. I did not enjoy that. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I'm yeah. so glad there are people to do that. As I was sharing with you, I, I think I have a trademark infringement happening right now. So yeah. So I still do that. I just don't go to court as much. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Yeah. So you had finished your story of leaving the larger firm and then you went to the boutique. Oh, you didn't want to be partners with them. And so the next step yep. was... I looked around and there were... you know, I live in a small town, so there was nothing really appealing locally. It's a lot of uh, manufacturing here. So that's yeah. the kind of intellectual property that I would have been doing. And I just wasn't very interested. So my husband had been a consultant entrepreneur and he kind of nudged me and said, I think you can start your own thing. Like, I think you'd be good at this. So I had a little runway. We can talk okay. about that more. But, you know, <laughs> I was like, well, if I fail, like I'm really good at relationships. So I know I can go beg for a job. Like I, I knew it wasn't going to be the end of the world if it didn't work. I would love to talk about the runway. This is one of the most popular questions I get. How do I know when my business has to be profitable? I'm like, well, when your runway is over. (laughs) 
So how did you calculate your runway? I mean, imperfectly, but my last job was pretty well paying. And so we were a little bit more frugal toward, you know, when we, I think I, it took me maybe four to six months, like after I kind of decided, okay, I'm going to leave to actually like give notice and leave. So we had a little planning time. Yes. We like didn't make any big purchases or trips at my last job. Also, it was a plaintiff's firm. So we took cases on contingency. So there'd be like big payouts every now and then. So I would like just get checks in the mail unexpectedly for large amounts. So, you know, I kind of just banked my last couple bonus checks. And so that uh, and my husband at that point, now there we've definitely had kind of a give and take. But at that point, his business was actually earning more than I was making in my lawyer job, okay. which was great. So That's it kind nice. of felt like, okay, like he could carry us if he had to, like, you know, there'd be some, some cuts, but that felt comfortable. And then we had like some bonuses bank. So I felt like I had like three to six months. Like that's kind of what I had in my brain of like, I wow, really want, I mean, yeah, it's not that, it's not that long. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, also, I don't know. Maybe I was overly confident, but I mean, I started making money right away. I mean, it wasn't a lot, but okay. And I stayed as a contractor with my old firm when I left. So I knew I had like, that was a couple thousand dollars a month. It wasn't a lot, but it was like enough that I knew I had like a little bit coming in. And then, I mean, I really hustled in the beginning. So I was like, this has got to work. Like, I'm going to really give this my all. What were the things you were doing to hustle? Oh my gosh. Well, I am a, a high fact finder. If anyone has taken the, I think it's the Colby. Colby. Yeah. So I did a lot of learning and then I sent out a postcard to like, or no, like a mailer, a nice mailer announcing that I was open and like what kind of things I was doing. I sent that out to like everyone I had ever met, like all of my law school friends, like everybody locally I knew. And I had a goal to do coffee or lunch every day. So I was sending out just tons of like, Hey, I'd love to connect. I'd love to tell you what I'm doing. Like it was just a lot of that. And like going to events, going to networking events, just yeah, a lot, a lot, but it worked. I mean, it works. Like the more you talk about it, it does. Okay. So yeah. this is largely in-person connecting, networking, lunches. In the beginning. Yeah. You probably had some relationships you were leveraging because you had been being a lawyer for so long. Right. Okay. Yeah. But I had zero okay. clients. Like I did not bring any clients with me. Okay. I was starting a totally, and I was moving from litigation to more of a business kind of transactional practice. Okay. So it was, it was starting from zero, but you know, I started getting referrals pretty quickly. It's like when people know what you do, I mean, that's kind of, I'm sure in your industry too, like if someone knows a lawyer, they think that lawyer can do anything. And so they will ask them questions. And then that lawyer's like, let me think of who I know who can do this because I want to help this person. Hey, money lover, it's Hillary. When I'm not behind the mic here, I'm running Hendershot Wealth Management, a fee-only fiduciary financial advisory firm that works with women and couples who want to take their finances to the next level. That fee-only part is important when it comes to financial advisors because it means there are no kickbacks or incentives built into the advice we give. We succeed only when you succeed. Listen, I've made all the money mistakes in the book, but I've taken myself from nearly $600,000 in debt to a seven-figure net worth, and that's what I want for you too. The wealth, not the debt. If you're ready for financial freedom, let's chat. All of our clients start with an initial no-obligation call, like a meet-cute. Not a formal meeting without a romantic relationship on the other side, just a potentially lucrative one. Your finances are your future, and who you partner with matters. So grab your coffee, and let's get started at HendershotWealth.com forward slash contact. That's Hendershot with two Ts, Wealth.com forward slash contact. And now back to the show. Right. No, it's a little different in my industry, but 
<laughs> I mean, who's going to be your first million dollar client, right? Hi, yeah. I'm a financial advisor. How many clients do you have? Zero. I'll wait a bit. I'm definitely hiring you. Yes. <laughs> I'm so in. I thought I'm going to get five-star care. Yeah. Okay. So then at what point... So how did that evolve? I'm imagining you got to be so busy. I'm imagining that building a team wasn't the initial idea, but that you got to be so busy that you sort of went that route. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I thought I was just going to... I like ran the numbers because you're stupid. I mean, uh, not stupid, but I was just naive. I was very naive. So I was like, well, if I'm... You know, we have a high hourly rate. I was like, okay, great. Like, I've, I'm, a, if I bill out at $300 an hour and I've got 40 hours in a week, like, even if I just bill 30 of those, like, that's great. I had no idea how it really works. Then what happened? <laughs> then what happened? Well, I mean, really, when you're doing everything, like, if I, in the beginning, if I was billing 20 hours a week, that was like an amazing week because there's just so much other stuff you have to be doing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You can't actually work much more than 20 hours a week. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So I made my first hire. I really, Again, thought I would be so low, but realized I needed help. And I was learning a lot about business. And so I was kind of drinking the Kool-Aid of like, okay, I can I can do this. It can be bigger than just me. Like, this is not an impossible thing. Okay. I got pregnant with our third kid about eight or 10 months in to after I opened the firm. Wow. Just You were just like, let me do all the things this freaking year. <laughs> well, I will tell you, I had really wanted a third kid for a couple of years. We had twins first, which was really hard but and great and you know all the things. So yeah. I've been lobbying my husband for a third kid. And I mean, with my last job, like there's just no way we could have added another one more thing to the mix. Right. So when I opened my own firm, it was so much more flexible and I just had so much more freedom and our life just improved <laughs> so dramatically that we kind of decided together and I was getting older. So we were like, okay, let's just do this. Like there's really no reason to wait. And my firm was going well enough that I kind of thought, I was like, I think this will be fine. And it was fine. It was not a problem, but I hired a... VA at that point to just, I needed a little bit of support. I wanted to take a maternity leave and not feel like I was dropping balls. So that was the first hire. Okay. So the VA was able to carry your business through a maternity leave. Was that, had that person gone to law school? I shut all my client projects down. So I basically like finished everything up and I told all my clients who were all very lovely and I was not working with the level of business that we are today. It was much smaller businesses. So they didn't have as frequent needs and they were all very, you know, I just gave them a lot of notice. Like I'm going to be out. I wrapped up everything well in advance. So like if there was an emergency, it wouldn't be a problem. And then I really was just not working. And then things started trickling in during my leave. And I, we ended up with a very easy baby. And so I ended up kind of starting to take things a little bit earlier than I had initially planned just because I was kind of bored. But I was prepared for like really not doing anything during that time. And so when did you hire your first lawyer? Probably maybe a year and a half or two years in. It's hard to remember. Okay. So the baby is about just a few months old. Yeah. The baby was maybe a year. Like you said, we were getting busier. I think I hired, I know I hired a paralegal first before I hired another lawyer and she was helping with, uh, with trademark work. There's these deadlines that like, if you miss, you lose, you lose your trademark. So it's really important right. to have a really good, like we call it docketing, like a system for keeping up with that. And that kind of tracking is not my zone of genius. <laughs> so I hired a paralegal to come help with some of that and just like kind of project management and organizing and, you know, the things that my VA really couldn't do, but a paralegal who knows how the law works was able to do. And then I kind of hit the ceiling with her of, I really needed another lawyer to just like do things. And it, she could kind of get things started, but then I really had to do the lawyering. Right. So, and all of these hires were hourly. Like I was so scared of having a payroll. Like it was very low commitment for all of us. 
Payroll is terrifying. Yeah. And so that really is my, my question is, what is the starting approximate pay range for a lawyer? In other words, when you started having a real payroll, I'm imagining it was six figures. So the first lawyer I hired came to me through a friend and she was a stay-at-home mom. She had been a partner at a big firm. She was a stay-at-home mom for a couple of years because she had moved away from her family and just being a lawyer. As you mentioned, like it's just really hard to balance if you don't have a lot of support. So she had taken a break and was looking to get back in. And so it was kind of perfect because I didn't have a full-time job. I didn't really even have a part-time job. And she was just kind of looking to kind of get started of being a lawyer again. So she, yeah. Yeah. And she really didn't have like a certain amount that she needed to hit. Like it was very easy for both of us to kind of ease into it. But I was paying her a hundred dollars an hour, which is not nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So and and now I do have full-time lawyers on my payroll. You do, you do. I do. So were you pricing your projects correctly from the beginning? No. (laughs) How did you design your first pricing structure and what happened to it? So I, again, drank... I love podcasts. I was listening to all these legal podcasts and like, it's it's still very... This was 2015. It's still very trendy. Although I think the trend is changing a little bit. Everybody was talking about flat fees, flat fees, flat fees, flat fees, which is like fine in theory. We do some flat fee work now, but... I didn't know, I didn't have enough experience with the kind of work we were doing to even know what flat fee was appropriate. Like I just, I was kind of throwing numbers out. I mean, I remember I did a business purchase for like $500, like just insane. (laughs) And I was learning and it was just me. Like I had no expenses. It's like me in our extra bedroom. So, you know, it was kind of fine to have that learning curve. But when I brought, and Michelle is still with us, Michelle Coakley was my first lawyer. When I brought her in and started paying her $100 an hour and she was doing real lawyering, like she was not cutting corners, right. like I started losing my shirt and I couldn't tell her to like not be as... Now we joke, we have a joke at the firm, like be less awesome. I did not yet know that I could tell her to be less awesome. <laughs> but I mean, she wasn't really overdoing it. It was just like, I didn't know how long things take and I didn't know, you know, what's an appropriate scope to even... I mean, we didn't even really scope things. We just were, we were really? figuring it out. We were figuring it out. So by your calculations, approximately how much were you undercharging? So you charged five hundred dollars for a business transaction. I never did what that. What would again. it have taken her to do it? Okay. <laughs> I mean, now I would probably quote that as like five to ten thousand dollars minimum, like getting started. Like it's just so much work. Yeah. And I wasn't underwater on every project, but we were tracking, like I she was because I was paying her hourly, she was tracking her time. So even though we weren't billing it to the clients. So right. I had a lot of data. And so I think we, she had worked for me maybe six or nine months and I like kind of pulled, did a big data dump. And that's when I was like, oh no. <laughs> and I think, yeah, we went through a couple different phases, but. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, you're right at the, the place where a lot of female business owners find themselves really paralyzed because. And I say this, it's like you take your dreams and your goals and you put them on a shelf because you're too damn afraid to say to someone, I have to raise my prices. Like I have to. Yeah. I'm currently paying you to work for you, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) This is an honor and a privilege, but I'm not actually making any money. (laughs) It is. It's such a privilege. And so to what do you ascribe the courage or the the chutzpah (laughs) that it takes to go to people and say, I need to 10x my prices? I mean, we didn't 10x right away. It was very incremental. So I think that was kind of step one was I think maybe we raised our flat fees a little bit. 
And we kind of kept creeping them up. Uh. But what I learned, we were working with very small, like teeny, teeny, tiny business owners, a lot of really new business owners. And what I learned, and a lot of them just couldn't afford to pay anymore. And like, that's fair. So what we learned after we started raising our prices were people just like, I can't afford that. So we lost a lot of clients, which I was working on bringing in new clients. So it was like, it was fine. It couldn't be that way forever. (laughs) But I mean, we finally figured out we had to just, it probably took three years of just kind of like continually up leveling and changing the way we marketed, changing the way that I like built relationships and tried to find clients to get to the level of business owner that could afford the level of service we were delivering. Like I did not want to compromise that. And my sweet Michelle Coakley, who was like a former big law attorney, like it it takes everything I can to get her just, it was a habit. She had to break a little bit of like delivering the Procter and Gamble level of legal services to $50,000 revenue, tiny little graphic designer business. So how did you accomplish that with her? What kind of boundaries did you put in place or... I mean, there's someone on my team. It's not really a a parallel story, but I'm just imagining that that's kind of juicy that you going to this person who's not a business owner, she's not responsible for the business, the bottom line. Right. And you're saying, I need you to actually produce lower quality. Right. And it's still quality enough to work for the client. So tell me what are the lessons learned from that interaction? Yeah, I think it was, I mean, it was an, it still is an ongoing conversation. Is it? But yeah, I mean, you just kind of fall into old habits, I think. But I think for me, what was important was I didn't want it to be lower quality. But and I think the more she had, she is great with clients. So she had a lot of direct client like interactions. I think she learned pretty quickly too that like they don't want a 10 page memo. Like they need three paragraphs and a recommendation. They don't need to know all the intricacies. And that doesn't mean your lawyering is less. Maybe you do the same amount of research. You're just not spending as much time like laying out this incredibly thoughtful analysis in a memo. Like maybe the analysis is just like some bullet points on your notepad. And then you're not like sure. putting that into a beautiful memo. So, I mean, I, our, our standards are summarize so really... it for them. Yes. <laughs> Give me the top. Yeah, and level. I think that was it. It was like, it's not that you're doing lower quality. It's that you're giving the client what they actually want and need. And. The risk is so much lower. I think that's the other thing. We think about this a lot as lawyers. Like, what is the risk that you're trying to either reduce or, you know, handle or whatever? And so, you know, just talking with her about like the risks are because she is always like, oh, malpractice. I'm going to, I'm going to make a mistake. And I'm like, it's really fine. Like, these are not high risk. Most now some of our clients are higher risk, but at that time, it's like the risk is really low. Like, it doesn't have to be. 95% of the way there is good enough. It doesn't have to be 99.9% of the way. And like that extra 5% is really expensive for them and us. And like, they don't really need it or want it. So it was kind of just that evolution, I think. One of the ways we do that, I'm sure that you do this too, is just to make sure we're working for the same kind of client. So we Mm. don't do brand new stuff or go way out on a limb to, as you said, you said it to me before we started recording, (laughs) you'd be paying me to learn. And yeah, so there's like people, we look at each other and go, yeah, we're going to bless and release this particular one. Yes. Again, we can systematize. That was a big part of it. So we have great forms. We have a ton of research banked, like that we don't have to spend a bunch of time doing new research. Like we have really good processes because we do the same, you know, we work with one type of business. So we're able to develop a lot of expertise just off the top of our head, which is helpful for everyone. And so, okay. So at some point you settled on online business owners, coaches. I'm looking at your website. Online course creators. Yeah. 
Online course creators. That's right. Yeah. Uh, are these just the people you were attracted to, made friends with? Did you feel like they had a special legal need? When I say attracted to, sorry, you know I don't okay. mean sexually or romantically. No. You know what I mean. <laughs> I definitely was and not romantically or, or sexually. <laughs> I started off thinking I was going to be like a startup, like tech lawyer, because that, you know, I have an IP background and yeah. that's what we have a lot of here locally. And I had a robust local network. And then I did a little bit of that. And it was, I had a couple meetings with like, you know, a 19 year old with an idea and we spend three hours. I answer all of his questions and like give him a proposal about what he needs. And he's like, yeah, I'm just going to use legal zoom. So yeah. I figured out real quick that that was not going to be where I was going to find happiness. <laughs> so I was, I, I think I mentioned like they don't teach marketing or sales in law school. So I was like listening to a lot of podcasts, trying to learn the business of running a business. And I think that's where you and I connected maybe originally. Cause didn't we figure out we connected in like 2016? 2016. Yeah, yeah. Seven years ago. Yeah. So I, I joined these Facebook groups for these podcasts or for the, I think I took one or two little online courses just to learn things and they all had Facebook groups. And so I was just asking my questions. I was seeing people post legal questions and there were no lawyers in there. I was literally in, you know, a Facebook group of 7,000 people, the only lawyer. So, and at that time there was a big trend of like, go into Facebook groups and just be helpful and then you'll get hired. And it really, it was true. Like I probably the first two years, (laughs) not true anymore. (laughs) But probably the first two years of my business, like that's how I got a lot of clients and it was on accident at first. And then it was on purpose because I, the people were nice. I really liked working with them until I found out they could not really afford me. But I learned a lot during those years of when it was just me, it was fine. So how do you isolate now for the clients who can afford you? Do you have a, a revenue guideline or what? how do you do that? We do. We have a pretty involved intake process. I mean, we try to message it on our website and in social media that like we work with more established businesses. We use like seven figures or million dollar plus in a lot of our messaging, which is kind of cheesy and I don't love it. But I just feel like you kind of train people like, oh, that's who they work with. Yeah. And not to say that's the only people we work with, but that, that's kind of our ideal client. And then anyone who contacts us, it's usually like, and we are almost all referrals. So it's usually like an email introduction or something. We ask them to fill out a form that's like, takes five minutes, but it has a couple key questions. One is like team size. One is how long have you been in business? And we do ask for revenue. And we say like, it's not a cutoff, but just we want to make sure we're providing value. And frankly, like under about 300 to 500,000 annual revenue, we're just too expensive. Like it just doesn't make sense. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And so tell me, this is for my personal curiosity. You have lawyers always talking about how important those disclosures are on the website. I've never heard of anyone getting hurt because they didn't have disclosures. Yeah. You're nodding your head. You're shaking your head. Tell me. (laughs) I mean, it is important. And if there were a lawsuit, like I could see that being one factor among many. If someone's like, oh, you were giving tax advice and you shouldn't have been. And I did something that I wish I hadn't. And now I've been harmed. And now I'm suing you about it. But I'm knocking on wood. We really are not seeing those lawsuits, at least right now. So, you know, it's something I still advise my clients to do. It's a best practice. It doesn't hurt. And we put it in their contracts and, you know, we like to put it lots of places, but I don't see it being a huge problem, at least right now. We're recording this in 2023. Uh, Things may may change. We'll see. (laughs) I see there are like bigger things that I worry about more than that, I guess. What are the big things? What are the things people are getting in trouble for? Not having good contracts is like the number one thing that we, that's like our day oh, contracts day for engagement. Yeah. Like their client contract is usually, unless they've worked with another lawyer who really understands the online space, 
it's usually just missing things and is not really doing them any favors. Really? So what's different about the online space? I think of that as just the way people meet people. (laughs) For my clients, it's more like the way they're delivering services typically. So a lot of our clients who are coaches, they have larger coaching businesses. So maybe they're running a group coaching program. Maybe it has an online curriculum. It has weekly calls. It has potential for one-on-one coaching. There's like all these different elements. Maybe there's a Facebook group or some kind of community. So there's like intricacies with each of those things where things can go wrong, where your customer can get mad or where you can mess up. And there's some regulations around some of that, like recording calls, using testimonials, some of that, and then just like refund policies, termination, like how to, how can a client fire you or how can you fire a client and it all be handled as smoothly as possible. So, Got it. Yeah. And then we build IP protections into all of our contracts. And that's part of just my, as an IP lawyer, that's kind of the lens that I view a lot through, but kind of gives you an just extra protection above registering your copyright or trademark, like put it in your contract. And that's one more way that you can hold people responsible for not violating your rights. And that is what something I saw you publishing and talking about is when to put or establish IP into what you're teaching or offering online. So talk a little bit about that. How do people know when to go that route? And what does that really mean? What I have found is that it's typically a very natural progression for like a coach or a course creator, like an educator type business, which is who we work with. Typically, they start out because they're good at something or they know about something and maybe they're consulting one-on-one or they're coaching one-on-one. You know, They're helping people. They're providing services usually. And then maybe they decide, oh, I want to scale that. So I'm going to like create a group. Well, if you're if you have a group, you can't teach the same thing to everybody separately. So typically that maybe not intentionally, but it usually evolves into some sort of curriculum because they're like, oh, I've said this thing 17 times. Like maybe I should document it so that I I can teach it more easily. Or maybe I should create a worksheet or a workbook or, you know, whatever. So what we see happen most often is even with coaches, they develop a curriculum or some kind of like program where they're taking people from A to B, either learning a skill or making some sort of life transformation or achieving a goal. And then that is typically copyrightable and the name of it may be trademarkable. So then we start kind of figuring out like if it's really valuable to your business, not everything is. If that's the core of what you're selling and that's what you don't want people copying. I think that's the other thing. People develop their curriculum, they become known for it. And then either a student knocks them off or a team member leaves or somebody in the industry starts copying them. So that's when we see kind of the rubber meeting the road with that. I do read about this. You know, what's Mm -hmm. so funny. I have a friend who is a film editor and she was trying to convince me that trademarked is not a thing. It's actually copyrighted. Copy, C-O-P-Y-W-R-I-T-E-D, copyrighted, because she was works with copywriters. Uh I said, I don't, I don't think so. I'm not going to go to the mat with you on this one. That's a common mistake because they sound just alike. (laughs) Is that right? Yes. No, there's no W in copyright. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. And so what do you think would be more valuable for people listening? If we talk about just briefly how to know when to copyright or trademark something versus the difference between what those two things are. They're both pretty quick. Okay. So I'll start with the second one because that's kind of your foundational. So with copyright, we think of creative works. So you mentioned your friend, the movie editor, like movies, music, photos. I used to work for the photographers, statues, anything you can you know, think of artistic works. In the business context, 
it's all the things that might go into an online course. So like the videos, if you have a podcast like this one, your podcast episodes are covered by copyright. It can't be in your brain. It has to be like out of your brain into some sort of either digital or physical medium. But things that you don't think of as super creative, like your standard operating procedures could be copyrighted. If you have workbooks or worksheets or templates that you use in your business, those could be protected by copyright if they have some creativity to them. So a lot of digital online businesses, like most of what they really have that is anything valuable is copyright protected. So trademarks are... Think of brand. So think of like the name of your podcast, Love Your Money Podcast. Like that is a brand. Correct. It could even be your name if you're very famous, like Kim Kardashian has a million trademarks. But typically it's going to be like business name, product name, maybe a logo or a slogan. Think of like, how do your buyers know that they're hiring you or that they're buying from you? Like it's, it's supposed to really help consumers find what they're looking for. So trademarks are all about brand. And there's some overlap, like Mickey Mouse could be either one. Like Mickey Mouse is creative, but also, you know, signifies the Disney company, but most things are pretty separate. So if we're talking about a decision rule for people, kind of like as soon as you're making a half million dollars and you're putting your ideas out there and teaching stuff, now's the time to start thinking about either copyright or trademark. If it's been repeated, I typically will say like, are you making money from it? Do you plan to stick with it? Like I wouldn't, I mean, depending on how big the business is, we do sometimes do protections in advance, but with that's like, you're usually a multimillion. Because they, they okay. are going to invest a lot in a launch. Like they're not gonna, just going to try something and you know, float it out there. But yeah, I typically want it to be kind of a proven product, making money, not just like, oh, I had this idea or like I have a passion project for such. I mean, you can. If you have unlimited resources and time, sure. But most people right. have to prioritize. So that's how I like to think about it. Right. For me, the financial space is so crowded that anytime I thought of anything, I wanted to trademark it. I was like, let me put a tent somewhere on this crowded campsite. Well, I was just going to say for service providers like you and me, I don't, I'm an unpopular opinion here, but I don't think trademarks are critical for most service providers because most people, it's a personal relationship. They're hiring you because they know you or someone they know has worked with you until you reach a very large level. People are not typically like looking for your brand. They typically know, oh, it's, Hillary and her team. Correct. Yeah. Correct. But we do have a curriculum inside our product now that, Yes, that is different. Yeah. 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 Okay. Did I miss any salient points about your financial story? We were talking about how you evolved and to be an effective pricing strategist. This is something my audience struggles with a ton. So is there anything I didn't ask you about there? I think the only... Our most recent evolution, and I have a feeling your audience probably struggles with this as well, is that I... I think the pendulum swung a little too far. I left my last law firm where I was working all the time and it was absolutely crazy. And so I wanted to be the opposite kind of boss. And so the last couple of years, I've been working on my own leadership skills and having to put a lot of guardrails around like we didn't really... I didn't have a minimum hours requirement for my billable team, but they were all on salary. Mm. And so like at some point that you have people who are maybe not as profitable as they should be to support. And, you know, you've got maybe one person kind of really supporting the whole business with their work and other people who are not. So we've had a journey of kind of putting those guardrails in place in a way that still feels like true to our culture, which is very collaborative. And, you know, we are value balance and all those things. But at the end of the day, we have to... We have to sell things for me to pay them. 
So that has been a journey. (laughs) I do feel like that's the evolution of anyone who's good at a profitable thing that they do. You grow a business and then you end up having to be mean boss and Mm -hmm. you don't want to be mean and you don't always have to be mean, but sometimes you're like, stop doing this. Right. Stop. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And nobody cares about it as much as you do. And that's normal, but we do all have to contribute if we want to still keep getting paychecks. It is called the team. Okay. Amazing. Thank you for the primer in pricing strategy, copyright, trademark, and also good to know who should hire you and how they can find you is at awbfirm.com. Yep. That's Autumn Witt Boyd. awbfirm.com. We'll link to that in all the places. Thank you for joining me today. It's so great to see you. It's been a juicy conversation. Thank you, Hillary. Yeah. Okay. As we wrap up today's conversation, I do need to review the legal stuff I need to disclose as a fiduciary financial advisor offering wealth management services through my company, Hendershot Wealth Management, LLC. The opinions expressed on Love Your Money are my own and they can change. The content I provide for the show is for general education and it's not intended as specific investment advice, nor do I recommend any specific financial products. I can't guarantee that my statements, opinions, or forecasts are always 100% right? Of course, I wish I could peek into that proverbial crystal ball, but so far I haven't found it. As you know, past performance is not indicative of future results. I do talk a lot about indexes and I want you to know that you can't actually buy an index because of course, when you take a list of companies and create a product that allows people to invest in those companies, there are fees and expenses involved that reduce returns. Remember, all investing involves risk, which as you know, means you could lose your money. And I have to tell you that there is no guarantee that any investment plan or strategy, including my own, will be successful. And that should keep my lawyers happy. 